This week on the Cameron Journal Podcast, we're talking about big tech under fire in Australia. We're talking about the inauguration, and we're talking about um, the reason why there may never, ever be a Trump presidential library. So, strap in. This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. It's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Cameron Cowan. This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. Welcome, welcome. I appreciate you all for stopping by this week. This is the third edition of the new and improved weekly news podcast. And now that the country's not burning down, rather than me just ranting for 45 minutes, we're actually going to have a bit of a format. So this week, I picked out a few news stories that I thought were worth covering. I want to start with the Biden inauguration because that was obviously one of the biggest news stories of the week, and it was an event that was kind of, the event itself was not fraught with difficulty, but it was such a big event because of everything that led up to it. And if you want to hear about all that, may I suggest you go listen to the previous two weeks podcast because I kind of went off. (laughs) But uh, we did manage to get Joe Biden and Madam Vice President Kamala Harris sworn in and in the White House, Trump left Washington at around 8 a.m. on inauguration morning. He was not in attendance. Mike Pence did make an appearance. Um, but Donald Trump was back in Florida by 11 a.m. Uh, while he was still president. And by 11.59, his term ended. And he was officially out of office. That's right, folks. No more Trump. Um, I have been celebrating this week because we no longer have to live through 3 a.m. tweet storms or people trying to figure out what they're doing or weird rambling speeches or non-existent press conferences. Um, The Biden people have been having press conferences every day for the past two days, like clockwork. Um, It's, as Rachel Maddow put it, it's just such a change from the past four years of not having regular press conferences and always, you know, looking to the president's personal Twitter account to find out, um, you know, what is going on and what's happening and all this sort of thing. Uh, No more. We are um, back in the land of the sane, which is is nice. It's it's a good thing. Um, It's really refreshing. I think everyone can finally exhale take a deep breath, and relax. Competent people are in charge. That being said, the Biden administration um, did not let any grass grow under its feet in terms of addressing the problems of the nation. Um, The first thing that they did um, among stopping the border wall is they canceled the permit for the Keystone XL pipeline Um, And I actually found an interesting news story. Um, Besides the cancellation of the permit 
for the pipeline and finally ending um, the construction of that pipeline between Canada and the United States. Um, the pipeline is going to yield 48,000 tons of scrap. It was unfinished um, as it, uh, at, because of the delays with the protests and the permitting and all this sort of thing, um, it was unfinished. And so now because the permit is no more, all the pipeline that has been constructed is going to have to be taken out and removed, which means all the metal from the pipeline is going to yield a lot of scrap. So scrappers, be happy, <laughs> um, <laughs> because there's going to be a lot of, of scrap available from this pipeline, the bulk of which will probably end up going to China. Um, but yes, that was one of the many executive orders that Joe Biden signed on Wednesday night. Um, undoing various and sundry, various and sundry things. Um, and one of the things that people asked me on, uh, on Twitter at Cameron Cowan was how long it would take to reunite families and children that have been separated due to Trump's completely disastrous, um, child separation policy. It's important to note in a spirit of bipartisanship, the idea of keeping immigrants in cages while awaiting deportation or other proceedings to proceed um, was not a Trump administration initiative. Um, immigrant detention centers were set up under the Obama administration um, as a way to not let immigrants wander willy-nilly throughout the country during their asylum or other court proceedings or their immigration status. Um, what the add-on that Trump did to the immigrant detention centers was separating children from families. Um, at one point, there was even a, a Trump administration official that was tracking the menstrual cycles of young women to see if they were pregnant or not or getting pregnant. Um, there was even potentially um, from the pro-life party, uh, forced abortions going on to prevent women from having um, children that would be U.S. citizens. So um, that, was, that was the Trump administration's add-on to it. And despite the court orders to reunite all of these families, um, a lot of these children and are still separated from their parents. And the unfortunate reality is it's going to take a long time to unwind that. Um, new people have to be installed at Homeland Security and they have to kind of figure out what the Trump administration did or did not do, what records they did or did not keep, and then try to start reuniting these families. And that is an important but incredibly difficult task. And it's going to take time, but hopefully with fresh faces at Homeland Security, um, that's going to be possible. Um, Biden has been slowly but surely cleaning out um, ex-Trump officials, including a lawyer for the National Labor Relations Board that was installed three days before the end of Trump's term. Um, Biden asked him to resign. He refused. Biden fired him. Um, there's going to be a lot of that going on in the coming days of cleaning out um, dishonest and unfair uh, Trump appointees who arrive at their agencies with their own weird and wonky agendas. So um, definitely look for look for more more of that. As I said, the border wall has been stopped and the emergency has been stopped 
which um, means there's no more funding for the border wall. Um, and if there are uncompleted sections of that, it can join the scrap along with the uh, Keystone XL pipeline scrap, um, which will all be chopped up and probably sent to China. So uh, I did see a new story that Biden and Justin Trudeau in Canada are planning a bilateral talk here soon to reset U.S.-Canadian relations. I also imagine that President Biden will be um, meeting with other international leaders in the coming days to try to repair what's left of American foreign policy after four years of, of Trump. Interestingly, China put sanctions on a variety of Trump administration officials, including uh, Mike Pompeo, basically disallowing them from doing business in, in the country. So that I thought was an interesting development and it happened practically the moment that Trump was out of, of office and Biden was in office. Um, I'm sure the right will, I'm sure that sort of action will continue to promote the right's China Joe sort of, sort of policy. So taking a drink. Ah, much better. So when you're talking this much, the throat gets dry and you want to keep everything moist and juicy. That way it sounds better. Not that this is an ASMR podcast, but we just want it to sound good. <clears throat> so that was quite, quite interesting. In addition to um, that, we're not quite out of the woods with Trump just yet. Um, Chuck Schumer, the new majority leader in the Senate, um, has announced that the Trump impeachment trial will begin on the week of February 8th. The House passed a single article of impeachment days before Trump was set to leave office um, over the events of January 6th and the um, insurrection that occurred and his inciting of a riot. That article of impeachment now moves to the Senate um, for trial and conviction. Although it does not mean that Trump will be removed from office because he's already gone, it does mean he would be disqualified from holding future office and he would also... Um, he would also uh, be denied his pension, his travel budget, and his Secret Service protection, which right now he's entitled to for life. So if this moves quickly and conviction in the Senate happens, which is not guaranteed because it requires Republican votes and that's politics, um, if, it, if it does happen, which is unlikely, I think, but if it does happen, um, it means that at this rate, Trump may never even receive his first pension check. <laughs> Um, at this rate of, of speed. So, um, that will happen in, in two weeks and that just came across the wire, oh, a couple hours ago. So I thought that was interesting, um, that that is, is proceeding forward. The other people who are also being affected are various and sundry Republicans in the House and the Senate, including Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. Right now in GOP politics, a lot of... Uh, major corporate GOP donors are currently pulling um, their donation funds from pretty much anybody who had any involvement in the uh, January 6th insurrection. 
Now, that might not seem important, but in GOP politics, not having the right type of corporate donors behind you is pretty much a death sentence. You can't get elected dog catcher without major corporate money. And the fact that these corporations are beginning to boycott a lot of these people, if it if they stick to it through 2022 and beyond, um, could mean that their campaigns are starved of funds and they end up getting voted out, either primaried by another Republican or possibly won by a Democrat just simply due to lack of funds. So um, it's it's quite significant that corporations and corporate donors are taking such a profound stand on um, on this matter. And I think it's it's emblematic of what I've told people is the major rule of American politics. You can do a lot of things in American politics, but one of the rules you absolutely cannot do is you cannot physically assault and attack the wealthy and powerful. That's just bad form. It's just simply not done. And I think the fact that the insurrection is looked on so poorly and so unfavorably by so much of the American public, even many Republicans thought it was a bad thing, um, is... I think very indicative of where we are right now um, in politics. I think it's going to be very interesting to see what will happen with the corporate thing in the future. There's also right now a movement to try to get Liz Cheney out of House leadership because she was one of 10 Republicans who voted for the article of impeachment. That's a difficult thing to do. Liz Cheney comes from deep, deep, deep red Wyoming hasn't voted Democrat since the 1920s. Um, and her father was Dick Cheney and used to be vice president. Um, and he's one of the most powerful men in the Republican Party and an extremely powerful businessman. And that this whole, this whole tension right now in the Republican Party between the establishment who is invested in the system and the upstart Trump supporters who basically want to tear everything down and nearly almost did, I think is quite fascinating. Rumor has that Trump wants to form his own political part, his own political party called the Patriot Party and kind of move all of his supporters over there. I think is quite fascinating, not only because um, I'm surprised he never did that to start with, but also because the Patriot Party back in the 1930s was a socialist organization. Um, not Trump's brand of national socialism, but certainly um, a socialist and communist leftist organization. I just find that fun. Um, I think that I think it would be if anybody had done a basic Google search, <laughs> they could have picked a different name and somehow nobody managed to do that. But it's the Trump people and they just they don't do their homework. They're those kids. They just don't do their homework. So we managed to get Biden in. Uh, Bernie Sanders became a meme of the moment. I think the first big meme of 2021 because he arrived at the inauguration in his plain brown coat and his recycled woolen mittens and sat on <laughs> the metal chair socially distanced with his legs crossed with a mask on and just kind of grumped his way through the whole affair. Um, which everyone found incredibly funny and entertaining. Jewish Twitter went off on a bunch of references to synagogue events and holidays and all this type of thing because Bernie Sanders is Jewish. And uh, people have 
taken that picture and that meme and they have done absolutely everything to it. I've seen him hanging from bats on the subway, on the famous steel girder picture from the 1930s during the construction of the Empire State Building. This picture has gone around the world a dozen million times and everybody is just living their best life with this Bernie Sanders picture. Um, although some people would mention the fact that uh, if a woman did that, um, it would not be as well received, but everyone sort of expects it from from Bernie Sanders. So uh, the inauguration, there was no real inaugural balls because we're not doing gatherings because of COVID, um, but there was a celebration of America and Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris spoke and President Biden spoke and Tom Hanks hosted the whole thing. Um, and there was fireworks at one point and uh, it, it was a lovely sort of celebration of first responders and America and all this type of thing. Of course, the whole event was incredibly well produced. It was very smooth, great for television. There were multiple performances from John Legend and all this sort of thing. Uh, Lady Gaga sang the national anthem at the inauguration um, and her dress was in typical over-the-top Gaga style. Um, for some reason, Jennifer Lopez thought it was smart to do um, America the Beautiful and This Land is Our Land and then sing a verse from Let's Get Loud, her pop song. Didn't really understand what she was doing with that. It was weird. Um, uh, the, the fashion moments of the inauguration um, made headlines as well. Michelle Obama showed up in a burgundy affair, pants and sweater and coat because it was very cold in Washington, D.C., um, and people, you know, the news coverage was like, oh, and there's Michelle Obama and party. She was standing next to former President Barack Obama. Um, people were more excited to see her than they were to see Barack. But speaking of Barack, um, Presidents Obama, Bush and Clinton got together in an amphitheater on the National Mall and in the shadow, not in the natural light, um, decided to record a message of unity for the nation and talk about the importance of peaceful tran transfers of power um, as ha had happened that day and has happened between each of their administrations. Um, I think it was especially important for Bill Clinton to be there because Bill Clinton um, defeated one-term president George H.W. Bush, George Bush's father, um, and they had a cordial transition of power despite a very ugly campaign. The 92 campaign was a mess. Um, so I know the campaign managed to do a handoff in a very classy sort of way, and then Clinton to Bush, and then Bush to Obama, and there were no riots, there were no insurrections, there were no calls of fraudulency, all this sort of thing, and George Bush came into the White House under, under very unauspicious circumstances due to the Florida 2000 count recount situation it went to the supreme court the 2000 election was very contested and it took a long time to figure it out much like our 2020 election but they al gore who was vice president at the time um eased through the transition confirmed the electoral college votes um and made sure the incoming bush administration had a nice handoff and then george bush returned the favor to the incoming obama administration Bearing in mind, Bush was a Republican and was backing John McCain, and Barack Obama was a new upstart Democrat. And so it, I think it was a really nice sort of message. I think there was a real focus on trying to bring everybody together, 
um, and make everything happen and show how things could be different from what we've had over the last four years with Trump and company. So that was the inauguration. It was very lovely. It was very nice. People cried, tears of joy. Um, it was it was a wonderful it was a wonderful thing. Um, <laughs> there has been a sort of interesting um, situation with the security aspect of the inauguration. 20,000 National Guard troops were stationed in Washington, D.C. Um, to provide security for the inauguration. It was widely suspected that there might be violence, um, both in Washington and around the country for the inauguration. And there was a bit of an interesting scandal last night where rather than sleeping sort of around the Capitol on their off-duty shift, um, the National Guardsmen were moved to a parking garage and I guess had to sleep in the parking garage and it was like only one porta pot for like thousands of people, um, which was just not not workable. Um, and then it was the change was made a little bit later and uh, they were moved back into the Capitol to sleep during their off-duty time. Um, reportedly, and I just saw this come across the wire as I was preparing for this recording, from the week, nearly 200 National Guard members have reportedly gotten COVID since the Capitol riot. It says here, COVID-19 is spreading among the National Guard troops sent to protect the Capitol. Around 26,000 Guard members from every state were sent to the Capitol area after Trump supported January 6th attack, and many have remained to protect the area in the week after President Biden's inauguration. Close to 200 of those soldiers have since tested positive for COVID-19, defense officials tell the Wall Street Journal. Hundreds more are quarantining in hotel rooms after being exposed to the virus, political reports. Guard members who arrived in the days before the inauguration lined the halls of the Capitol to sleep between their 12-hour shifts. They didn't get coronavirus tests before arriving. One guard member told Politico, saying, Right after the holidays, they packed us together like sardines in buses and rooms for this. And things got worse Thursday as guard members were told to set up their base camps outside the Capitol complex and take their breaks outside, too, after Capitol Police seemingly removed them from the grounds. Dozens were relegated to rest in a parking garage Thursday night, packed close close to rest once again. Lawmakers on both sides of the aisle spent Thursday night and Friday morning pointing fingers over the garage situation and offered up their offices for naps. Biden apologized to the National Guard Bureau head Daniel R. Hokinson on a Friday call, and First Lady Jill Biden dropped off some cookies. The Guard members have since been allowed back inside the Capitol, but Florida Governor Ron DeSantis did call his troops back home. <laughs> so, um... That's that's pretty much the inauguration as such. Um, that's kind of been the headlines for the last for the last few days. Um, there's a couple other news stories I want to get to um, this week. It has nothing to do with the president or elections or anything. I know it's hard to imagine news that's not focused on Trump, but in tradition of the last four Trump years, the first news story I want to cover is actually Trump-related. <laughs> it's from Politico. And the headline is, Will there be a Trump presidential library? Don't count on it. 
it says here, for months, as the end of Donald Trump's term approached, historians and journalists have been playing a speculation game. What will the what will Donald Trump's presidential library be like? A shrine to his ego, predicted a historian in the Washington Post. Others imagine a theme park or a full MAGA exercise in rebranding his presidency. One report said he's trying to raise an astonishing $2 billion to build it. Here's another more likely possibility. There won't be one. It's not because he doesn't read books, presidential libraries aren't that kind of library, and not because his presidency ended in a shocking insurrection at the U.S. Capitol fanned by Trump himself, resulting in a second impeachment. Other presidents have stepped down in borderline disgrace. Richard Nixon resigned, Hubert Hoover lost in a landslide, blamed for the Depression, and still got their libraries. Trump likely won't even manage to build a private library, such as the one Nixon finally created for himself, or the center for which Barack Obama has had great difficulty even breaking ground, which will lack a government presence, a research facility, or archives. Presidential libraries are complicated, and if you understand how they work and how Trump himself works, it's nearly impossible to imagine him actually pulling it off. The consequences of this failure for Trump and his supporters will go beyond just a building. Without a library, a center, or some kind of institute to shore up his reputation, his legacy as a president and his place in history are likely to fall even further out of his control. The first and most important reason not to expect a Trump library is it's expensive to build one. The government might pay for lifetime secret service protection, but it doesn't front the money for a library. No federal funds may be used to build or equip a presidential library. No federal property may be used. To get the ball rolling, former presidents must create a nonprofit to raise hundreds of millions of dollars, while, while they may do so in an unlimited sums with almost no disclosure. From any source, anywhere in the world, it's a lot easier to do while in office. Most presidents with federal libraries begin planning even fundraising before their terms ended. Franklin D. Roosevelt opened his library about five months into his third term. Eisenhower, Lyndon B. Johnson, and Ronald Reagan even broke ground before they left office. And Obama, who initially announced he would do no active fundraising while in office, did passively accept millions as early as 2014. It's much harder for a one-term president given the abrupt and often unexpected nature of their early departure from the White House. Needless to say, if Trump, who still has admitted that he lost, has any such effort underway, he hasn't made it public. True, Trump is a wheeler dealer, but the money requirement is stiffer than it appears. If a president wants to build a library that becomes a federal facility, the usual route is for him to donate all or part of it to the government. And in that case, the law mandates an additional operations and maintenance endowment to the National Archives of 60% of the cost of the full project. Even for presidents who have demonstrated decades of mature perseverance and attention to their top donors, it can be difficult to raise that kind of money. Fundraising gets harder each year a president is out of office. It gets even harder after he dies. It might seem less expensive in the short run to skip donating the library to the government to avoid that significant endowment, but in the long run, that's more expensive. The endowment is what legally allows the government to cover future operating costs. Without government funding, personnel, and resources, a president's foundation would need to pay millions of dollars a year to run the facility in perpetuity. When that money ran out, the library would shut down, or at best throw itself at the mercy of Washington. Nixon's foundation ran his for 16 years before finally giving up, begging the government to welcome the library into the federal fold. It did in 2007. Almost all presidents have had trouble with site selection. FDR's mother didn't want to deed part of the family estate. Harry Truman's relatives didn't want him to use the family farm. People in Cambridge, Massachusetts didn't want the Kennedy Library bringing hundreds of thousands of tourists with tiny streets. The foundation got hung up in years of protests and construction delays, finally giving up on John F. Kennedy's hand-picked site. 
Nixon resigned before he could finalize his secret scheme to build his library amid 4,000 acres he illegally wrested while president from the Marine Corps base Camp Pendleton. Where could Trump put his? Sometimes universities provide homes for local presidents, like the University of Texas, which provided 30 acres on its Austin campus for LBJ, but it's hard to imagine either of Trump's colleges, Fordham or Penn, to willingly hosting his library. Even less controversial presidents have run into friction with such plans. Duke University rejected Nixon, who got his law degree there. Stanford rejected the Reagan, the Reagan Library. Southern Methodist University faculty and students protested the George W. Bush Library, but the library eventually did open in its University Park campus. While each of these presidents had his controversies, none was as widely reviled by a large and diverse swath of the country. However opposition forms, it can be hard to persist and overcome for even the most patient and connected of former presidents. The Obama Center has had its groundbreaking delayed for years by community opposition in Chicago, the city that launched his political career. Trump has also some challenges that are uniquely his own. As of this writing, we don't know if he'll run again in 2024. We don't know if he'll launch a competitor to Fox News, OAN, and Newsmax. We don't know if he'll seek to form a new party or if his party will seek to break from him. We do know that the announcement of a presidential library center, or whatever it may be called, is a sign of the end of a political career, a capstone. In effect, a notice of retirement, at least from office seeking, and Trump has shown little inclination to step decisively out of the public eye. Even if he did, Trump would then have to raise, legitimately and according to the laws of the state in which he creates his foundation, hundreds of millions of dollars to build a traditional presidential library, with a museum, archives, and space for public events, his foundation's offices, and whatever other activities he wishes to attempt within such a limited legal and financial environment. To say the least, Trump has shown little ability to operate a legitimate nonprofit foundation, never mind build an endowment. He'll have considerable difficulty doing so in his home state of New York. Under a 2019 court order, after admitting to personally misusing funds at the Trump Foundation, Trump agreed to a settlement that, should he succeed in persuading anyone to give him money at all, puts an extremely short leash on any nonprofit he might launch in that state. If he does build a library, it's likely Trump would want the legitimacy and imprimatur of the federal government as a seal of approval for his story. Told his way. He might even like to have the National Archives host his exhibits about how great he made America, again, and perhaps how great was the theft of his second term. But to do any of that, the law will require him not only to spend money on the grounds and building, but to raise hundreds of millions of additional dollars and give it, almost unthinkably, to the government. If there's a model for a rule-breaking outsider like Trump, it might be, ironically, the Obama Library. But if anything, Obama's experience shows just how hard it can be for a character not known for focus or persistence. Obama is a popular two-term former president who, until 2020, had won the most votes and raised the most money of any president in history. He left office tied with Dwight Eisenhower for the third largest approval rating in more than 70 years. Yet Obama decided to skip the traditional presidential library, planning an, Ob an Obama center outside the National Archives system of official federal libraries. It will not be a research center, nor houses official records, and will have no role for the federal government. It's not clear why Obama went this route, though the lack of federal involvement frees him from the endowment requirement, and gives him greater latitude to portray his presidency and use the facility however he likes. After the Obama Foundation announced this break, the National Archives quietly announced it hopes future presidents will follow this new model, perhaps because the agency no longer wishes to be in the propaganda business, though the break has been added to the storage burden of an agency already running out of space. 
Given the archive's preference to not receive a donated library, it will be difficult for Donald Trump and Joe Biden and those who come after them to go back to the tradition. Of course, there's one other outside possibility. Trump, never one to bow to norms, might forge his own model entirely. He could bypass the fundraising and legal worries about running a charity and the thorny and costly issues with the government involvement and not build or even operate a memorial to himself, yet still get one. And a model would be, in a word, Trumpian. Trump made his name in real estate development, but few of the buildings with his name on them are ones he built or even owns. What he really builds is his brand, licensing his name to others who actually build and operate his towers and hotels. He could, in theory, use the same toolkit for a monument to himself, licensing the Donald Trump name to a for-profit enterprise, maybe a casino or a golf course, or a ticketed museum with an attached hotel, to operate as a tourist attraction for the magas and morbidly curious. Given the challenges of the other models, that would likely be the only way he could ever come close to having the kind of Trumpian shrine most observers have predicted. He could even brand it a library to avoid falling out of the club of former presidents, but that wouldn't make it one. And it goes on to talk about the bushes and all that sort of thing, but I thought that was interesting. I don't think, I don't think Trump is going to go the library route. Like, I just, I don't think he cares. Like, I, I don't. Um, I think he's, I think he's going to continue to pursue other business elsewhere. But I think it's also going to be difficult for him to focus on it because there's a lot of legal stuff coming down the road. There's civil suits. There's criminal suits. The state of New York, I think, is still planning on indicting him at some point. Um, I'm not quite sure what they're waiting on. It's been a couple days. He's out of office. But th there's multiple... Um, there's multiple things for the Trump world to focus on. The only thing we can be grateful for... We will not have to read about it on Twitter. So the other kind of big tech story that I thought was interesting, and then we're going to close up shop because it's been a long week. <laughs> I've been doing interviews. Um, there's a lot of really great new interviews every Monday on the podcast. So if you're not subscribed to this channel, you should. Uh, this week we had an interview from Dr. Letitia Brown, and we talked about black feminism. And this week upcoming, we're going to have DJ Lewis. Um, from the Into a Biscuit podcast with Drew Morgan um, as well. And we have writers coming up. We have book stuff coming up um, and just tons of interesting, fascinating people talking about interesting and fascinating things. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so keep an eye on the uh, Cameron Journal podcast channel every Monday for those interviews. But I've been recording a lot, making a lot of stuff for you guys. Um, and my voice is tired. And I'm tired. It's been a long day. Um, I ran a bunch of errands with a bunch of meetings. Very Trump. Hi, many calls and many meetings. I had many calls and many meetings today. Lots of correspondence to go through. So I want to talk about this tech story, and then we're gonna we're gonna pack it up for the day. Um, this week, it also came across Australia um, is in negotiations with Google to see if there's going to be a future of Google search in. Um, Australia. It says here from payments.com, uh, Friday, Google has said it might pull out of the country, Australia, if changes are not made to the proposed news media bargaining code. That code would, in broad terms, mandate that companies such as Google and Facebook would bargain with content publishers so specifically over the value of the news that is distributed over big tech platforms. The legislation is in Australia's House of Representatives at present. This Here's the reason why this story is so important. 
one of the, as someone who's spent most of my life working in media in some form, one of the major frustrations and what has killed the business model of many a local media outlet and many, uh, you know, privately owned media outlet like mine um, is the fact that while you appear on Google search and you might get shared on Facebook and those views come through, the fact that Google and Facebook make money off of the content that you provide, you never see any of those dollars. So for example, if you did not list your content on Google and many, many websites chose not to. Google's whole idea of cataloging the web and producing good results is predicated on websites providing their content to Google for free. Google makes money off of that. They sell ads around that, but those publishers never get paid. Facebook does the same thing. People share news stories, people, um, you know, have comments and all this type of thing, create engagement, all this sort of thing. All the work that everybody goes through, take advantage of search and social media, is all great, but the, the only time you can ever, as a publisher, ever get paid for that is if someone clicks through to the link and hopefully clicks on one of the ads that you host on your site. And for those sites that use Google ads, as I always have done, Google's also getting a cut of that too. So Google makes money on the front end when they search for your article, and they make money on the ads that you host on your site. For Facebook, it's, you know, Facebook gets free content shared to their platform. They get all the engagement, all the ad dollars, and the publisher who actually is going to the work of paying the people to create the content gets no dinero. And I have always said, especially when it comes to social media, Facebook either has to start paying for this content because the news is, media is going under, or they need to get rid of the algorithm and allow publishers to get in front of as many people as possible, to get as many clicks as possible, to get as much ad revenue as possible. One of the things Facebook did that really destroyed the news media is introducing the algorithm where if you post something to a fan page, the number of people that see that is comparatively small. So even on like the Cameron Cowan fan page, I have a handful of followers, um, like us on Facebook, um, I have a handful of followers. Each of my updates will only get seen between one and five people. If I want more people to see it, then I have to pay. Great for Facebook, not good for me. Um, in the case of Google, my content is just there. And people come from search all day, every day, um, by the hundreds. One day will be by the thousands, but today it's by the hundreds. And Google makes ad revenue off that and never get paid for it. What Australia is proposing to do is Australia is proposing to make Google and Facebook actually pay publishers a set rate from their ad revenue for the uh, sharing and availability of this content. And... As much as Google and Facebook may not like it, as much as Google's threatening to pull out and Facebook said it will restrict links and all this sort of thing, this is where the industry needs to go. Facebook and Google together control 90% of the digital ad market, leaving 10% to be cut up by everybody else. They control a massive, I mean massive, amount of the digital advertising market and everyone else is just cut out. And 
if you don't have an ad-supported model, it means you have to have a pay-supported model, which is why so oftentimes now when people click on links, there's a paywall. Because for publishers, that's one of the few ways they can actually get paid for doing what they do and, and actually recouping because this is a business, the cost of what it takes to actually produce news and content. If bloggers and news sites and whatnot got small amounts of revenue for the content that they produce for these platforms, they get all of this content, make huge amounts of money off it, never have to pay for it, it would make so many content sites actually have a business model that would actually work. Content would get better. It would create jobs. It would employ people. It would spread the wealth of big tech that is now concentrated in the hands of five companies. I hope this passes in Australia. I hope other countries consider it because as a content producer and publisher, this is the type of reform that is incredibly, incredibly necessary. I can't stress how hard and difficult it is to do all the stuff to get on search, stay in search, rank in search, increase your ranking in search, all this type of thing. And sometimes this can take years or get engagement on social media, all this type of thing, and know that ultimately Facebook and Google are making billions off of my labor and I never see a dime of it. And that is true for someone as small as me or as big as the New York Times. This is a way we could save local news media. We could improve the media ecosystem. And I'm not saying we need to break Google and Facebook. I'm just saying they need to pay some money and they're not lacking in funds. If they actually spread the wealth, it will make the media ecosystem so, so much better. And if you want to kind of understand more about the advertising model and all this type of thing, look at this channel and go back to an interview I did with Jordan Pierce in that interview where we talk about open source AI and 3D printing. I talk about how the open, th that kind of open web environment and the advertising model has really kind of ruined the media. Um, that if you are curious about this topic, that would be something interesting to listen to um, as well. So I would recommend uh, taking taking a look at that. But go Australia. I would love to see Google pull out of Australia if they pass this. Google controls 90% of search in Australia. And right now there's some people at Microsoft that are maybe kind of hoping that Google will do this because Bing could really take advantage of that market share and so could some other search engines. And this sort of thing could be the end of the Google monopoly. I mean, potentially, if Australia passes it and other countries look to it as well, this could either start getting money out of Google or start having a variety of different search engines. And either outcome is a good one. So let's uh, let's see if we can find a way to get big tech to support the content that they use to make their billions. So that's the podcast this week. Thank you guys so much for stopping by. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you. I love you for listening. Um, if you want me to talk about something or have a question about something or want to hear more about something, um, Facebook, Facebook, uh, uh, you can uh, look for my fan page, look up Cameron Cowan. It's facebook.com slash Cameron Cowan, at Cameron Cowan on Facebook and Instagram. Um, I have been posting um, news articles on all my feeds. 
Um, so feel free to comment there as well. If you send me a question, I will make sure to talk about it on the podcast. So thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week. Look for an interview on Monday. Bye-bye. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners, so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast.